Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Gideon Marcus, and this is another edition of The Journey Show, April 16th, 1967 edition, where we'll be talking about movies and a couple of great things coming your way. So, what? Wait, wait, 1967? Have I traveled back in time 55 years? Are you, are, uh, are you, are you time lost? Um, wait, there's wait a calendar a on your wall. It says 2022. Have we traveled forward in time? Are we time lost? <laughs> I, you know, I wish I was time lost these days. Uh, yes, yes, you you may be you may have gotten unstuck in time, like Billy Pilgrim. Uh, we are we are in the future right now, or maybe you're in the past, or maybe we're just in a time loop, which is how everyone is feeling in 2022. <laughs> I'm sure Philip K. Dick should, could write something completely comprehensible and rational <laughs> about this whole affair. It sure feels like it, doesn't it? Oh my god, goodness, it feels like we are trapped in a Philip K. Dick novel. It's caught in the time loop, right? Time is infinite. Uh, so yes, welcome to classic, uh, welcome to Jason and the Movie Knots, thinking my comic show for some reason. <laughs> uh, we are beaming back in time uh, to 1965 and 66 talking about a couple of great classic films, The Fly of the Phoenix from 65, and The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming from 66. Um, but before we talk about that, Gideon, let's start with the, with the pitch uh, and why people should check out the multi-Hugo-nominated Galactic Journey and the amazing uh, project that I get to be part of that you are running so adeptly. So, so from the perspective of people listening to this show, we actually live 55 years out of joint with everyone else. I am Gideon Marcus, and I run Galactic Journey at galacticjourney.org. And the conceit of this project is since 1958, or to you guys out there, 2013, we have been reviewing every piece of science fiction literature that comes out, most of the TV shows and movies and covering the politics and the fashion and the space shots and everything else, because you really need a, a holistic understanding of that time period to, to get the context. And it started out with just me, and uh, then it has grown like a snowball to include so many people. We had to bring in Jason because we needed someone to be wrong about uh, DC Comics. And, um, <laughs> and uh, we have, for instance, Lorelei Esther, who is here with us right now. Hello. Uh, she is this year a Hugo finalist in her own right in the best fan artist category. Ah, who? Um, and this is a special year because this is Jason's first appearance on the Hugo ballot um, uh, as one of the featured writers uh, as best fanzine. That is exciting. That is exciting. I've always wanted to be a Hugo nominee. Although I do have to say, they keep saying we're on the ballot, but I have looked all over and I cannot find us on the 1967 Hugo ballot. So I'm not sure if we're actually going to get a Hugo this year. <laughs> but two of the, the movies we watched recently, because we watch everything as it comes out, um, were these great movies that Jason mentioned, and we are really excited to talk about them today. 66 and 67 were great years for movies. Um, and it's the year that the movie industry kind of begins to really change. Um, you know, I, I'm a, you know, I'm a big fan of the, uh, the kind of wave that starts with Bonnie and Clyde, I suppose, which is 68, if I remember right. I wouldn't know. I haven't gotten there yet. We, I guess um, not. 
we just watched the Oscars the other day, hosted by Bob Hope, of course. Of course. And uh, and it was interesting because they had just a few hours before ended this uh, the strike. All the actors were striking at the time, so we weren't even sure if it was going to happen. Um, but it was <coughs> quite fascinating to see in 1967 the the movie landscape and how much it's changed from last year or the year before. Um, uh, just a couple of years ago, it was like um, I believe Mary Poppins, My Fair Lady, and a host of others were were the uh, <laughs> Oscar winners that year. And this year, it's been. Um, a Man for All Seasons and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and definitely like a, a much, I don't know, I wouldn't say darker tone, but a, um, movies with more grounding, I would say, and, and gravitas than they used to have. And it's interesting to see the landscape changing like that. I don't know much about A Man for All Seasons. We haven't seen it yet. Okay. I, I understand it's quite sweeping and long. <laughs> that's and that's long. the one about St. Thomas More, if I remember right. I think so. Um, but we were pleased to see uh, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, uh, uh, nominated for, I believe, Best Actor Performance. And uh, because the, the acting in that one is just absolutely phenomenal and hysterical. Um, Grand Prix, which is a movie I'd like love to discuss. Grand Prix and A Patch of Blue, I'd love to discuss in another show, and when especially when Janice can be here because we've all seen those too. Uh, Grand Prix won in sound design and editing, which if any other movie had won, the Grand Prix would have been robbed. Yeah. <clears throat> another one I haven't seen. That's Steve McQueen, right? No. So Steve McQueen passed on that role to do the sand pebbles which also okay. got nominated for a number of oscars um and jim garner got it instead and wow. i'm sure it's a much better movie for it yeah <coughs> that one's a another one that's incredibly um sort of down to earth uh, we're, we're seeing more and more movies that are just very realistic per, um perspectives on on niche things so like grand prix is the grand prix races but it's you get to see sort of the realistic situations of the relationships between drivers and what it's like to be in the driver's seat. The, the cinematography is just uh, unprecedented. They had to invent so many different um, mechanics to be able to, to do what they did, but it, it, you really feel like you're sitting there racing alongside everybody else. Wow, you got me really hyped to watch this. Yeah. Oh yeah. I hope we get to talk about it. Yes, please. <laughs> Uh, one of the things I liked about both these movies, they really do feel down to earth. You're right, Lorelai. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, when when we see the Russians land and the Russians are the Russians are coming, like it really is like all about this community kind of coming into action with this fear of the Russian invasion and how the whole community changes. And it feels like this big movie inside a small box in a way. I love the movie because it. It's farcical, but grounded enough not to be ridiculous. Yeah. And ultimately very heartwarming. Oh, yeah. When, when the Russians first land and, and go aground and just the expressions on the like the captain and lieutenant's faces, and they're just like, gosh, darn it. <laughs> <laughs> it, it feels it, but in, in such a, a funny way. I, I have to say, I um the <clears throat> the events of the last few years have been rather trying, as you might imagine. And um, 
So I, I until about late last year, I, I must say that to some degree, I had my head up my ass and was not a particularly pleasant person to live with. And one day in September last year, my, my lovely wife said, stop being such a jerk. And, uh, and then we watched the Russians. And, and so I stopped. <laughs> mind yeah. over matter I stopped being a jerk he, he hasn't been a jerk in, in many months yes wow you drink better little... than I am <laughs> yeah you don't have a bad mannered bone in your body yeah talk to <laughs> Mrs. Sachs about that but anyway um but uh we watched the Russians are coming the Russians are coming and uh and Walt the uh, writer played by Carl Reiner is kind of a kvetch and a drama queen yeah. and watching him I'm I turned to Janice I said this man reminds me uncomfortably of me. And she said, I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> Just why the, glad things work out at the end. But the beauty of the characters, he's got this wonderful story arc, right? He starts right. out as a kvetch, a complainer. Life is like, you know, he, he's stuck in his own head, really. Right. And then once he's kind of exposed to the bigger world around him, I mean, uh, we'll get to it in a little bit, but there, he has one of the most touching scenes in the movie, I think. When he acts, when he shoots up Alan Arkin when he's driving in the uh, Volkswagen, oh yeah, the look yeah. of abject fear on his face right. is wonderful. But of course, Carl Reiner's just was a uh, a legend for a reason. Right. I mean, he was one of our great American comic actors. I I don't think I've ever seen anything in in that he was in that I didn't absolutely love. I like that there's sparks between. Um uh Rasanov and uh and Walt's wife whose name I can't remember and I know she's also a famous actress whose name I can't remember Eva Marie Saint as Elspeth oh yeah Walker. and she was in Grand Prix by the way oh um, okay um and uh and there's just like a little bit of connection there and then when Walt is tied with the telephone operator <laughs> and there's that moment of connection I'm like you know this is just so real all of this the relationship between Walt and Elspeth is feels so real, right? I mean, as a couple has been married for a long time, like you could just see this, like, look at exasperation and love and frustration. Oh my God, he's doing the same crap again on their faces. I, it, but also, it, it oh, sorry, feels very lived in. Well, I also appreciated when he's like, you know what? You keep criticizing everything I do. You have an idea now. And she gets very upset. And then she has an idea, which also felt very real. Yeah. <laughs> um, something I quite liked um, talking about Walt's, Carl uh, Reiner's character's arc is at the beginning of the movie, the, the main conflict is all about what is his next story going to be? He has to, he has to write his, his play and get that done before the deadline. And then the entire movie happens. And by the end, um, I ex I completely expected it to come back and sort of be the capper. Maybe maybe the cr like crazy events would be the inspiration for his next play, and that's sort of the implication. But they never explicitly bring it back up again, which I think was very elegant because it it really does show that evolution in his thinking. Where at first it's all about his one mate like small problem, and then it evolves from there into him seeing the larger world, and then suddenly. He just doesn't care anymore. <laughs> uh -huh. Courage, Mrs. Voss. Courage. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think about that. Yeah, this kind of is slightly postmodern, right? Because it's you kind of get the sense by the end, he's got the inspiration, he's got the spark. And like this whole thing we've watched is kind of the spark of inspiration in his head in a way. Mm -hmm. It's also just an incredibly funny film. Oh, yeah. 
then World War Three is happening and everybody is blaming you. <laughs> <laughs> I heard they, um, uh, we both, uh, Dad and I were impressed by the use of authentic Russian in the movie and authentic sounding Russian accents. And uh, apparently the actors who all played Russian characters all had uh, like intense vocal training uh, and, and speech training before the movie to prepare for the roles. And we both thought that was a, another thing that lended authenticity to it that, that really helped. And it felt real that like during the whole first segment when the Russians are speaking to each other, we didn't get subtitles or anything. We're just kind of right. dropped in the middle of it and kind of forced to understand what's happening. And because like Theodore Beichel is the captain, Alan Arkin is lieutenant, are just such good actors, you get such a good sense of what's happening. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the end and the final conflict, the Mexican standoff, and, and then it's all broken up in a heartwarming thing, which some would say was was maudlin, but I I I thoroughly appreciated it. Yeah. Janice's favorite part of that movie was the part when they go to the airfield to find the Russian invasion and there's just the literally the snot-nosed <laughs> kid saying, nothing's happening here. And the chief of police just loses it. He just starts laughing his ass off. <laughs> that, that was Janice's favorite character in the film. Brian Keith is the police chief. Yeah, Link the same Maddox. the same one who says to the for the Russians when they're in the submarine, uh, "What's your address? I can have to arrest you." Yeah, <laughs> he is wonderful, yeah. and you can tell these are actors who've been, you know, used to they're used to being on screen. They've done a ton of acting in their lives, right? Keith had his TV series, Family Affair, mm. and I guess the little boy who gets uh, stuck on the on the church tower at the end is also an actor from the family affair. Huh. Interesting. Um, so, you know, these are people who know how to act. who have done it so long that this movie has this very effortless kind of feel to it. Yeah. The, uh, I appreciated the romance, um, between, uh, Andrea drum and, uh, and, uh, Colchin, uh, John Mm -hmm. Philip law. Um, I mean, it was, it was it was a little mawkish, but it was it was nice, and it was very interesting watching this movie right after seeing the second pilot of Star Trek, um, because Andrea Drum was on that, and it's basically she did Star Trek, she did Russians Are Coming, and then she did she just did a horrible spy flick in there in just a, a couple months ago, from my perspective, early 1967, and then she's just going to disappear, become a realtor, live with her mom. Oh really? Huh. <laughs> Yeah, she, well, she was a very famous model. She was the, um, she was a shampoo model, I think, or hair model. And well, she was I'm, also in an airline commercial. I'm looking at her IMDb credits, and she has literally like three credits. Yeah, she was in the, she was in a lot of ads. She was an absolutely gorgeous woman, um, and she was poised to break out in movies, and then she had a flop. And I, I think she just never really enjoyed doing movies. Mm-hmm. Um, Come spy with me. Yeah, wow, that sounds terrible. <laughs> I, the I title. Think, yeah, I think the the romance would have been a bit more effective for me if if she had been a better actress. Mm. Um, I, her performance seemed just a little bit wooden to me, and I mean, part of the problem was they they purposely didn't give her a lot of lines, um, and uh, but but I, I feel like uh, the the other half um, law really carried it. Yeah, and. Uh, uh, and I mean, he was, of course, devilishly handsome. So that that helped. <laughs> <laughs> well, she is the beautiful kind of wispy 
kind of sixties dream girl in a way. Yeah. You know, she, she has my only complaint about her is she looked too California to be a new England girl. True. Well, that they do live on, on an Island though. So. Well, not only that, but uh, Andrea Drum didn't come from California. She ended up making it big in California. She was originally born in Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. Uh, attended the university of Connecticut. Oh, interesting. So she's from that area. Wow. I didn't know that. Wow. But the, but the movie was filmed off the coast of Oregon. <clears throat> and really? they had to do all the shots like at different times of the day to make it backwards so the sun would be coming in from the right direction oh interesting wow no idea do you know where it was filmed in oregon uh i can tell you where wikipedia says it was filmed in oregon uh off the coast of northern oh not oregon uh off of uh, mendocino so, okay uh, um and i know they actually got real air force planes for the end of the movie which was was great verisimilitude yeah is I, yeah, I mean the the beauty of that ending is it kind of it has this kind of twist as it as the ending kind of happens, and, and it's really all about like these characters growing organically, from being from hating the Russians as anonymous people to liking the Russians as real people, and I know it has a real kind of important political statement from the time it was created, but um, I actually really like the kind of larger arc of the story too, which is about kind of finding peace and and happiness with those around you you know jewison was is he's still around in fact and we have we have communicated with the long story short is the uh director of the movie norm jewison and we have had correspondence we had opened it up talking about a previous movie um send send me no flowers which is uh, tony randall and rock hudson and uh, was was quite funny um, but there was a voiceover at the beginning of the movie and we didn't know who it was. I was sure it was Tony Randall and Lorelai was sure it wasn't. And then uh, so Norm Jewison's uh, agent got back to us and, and conveyed Norm Jewison's belief that it was in fact Tony Randall. Um, and I was aghast that Lorelai could not recognize the voice of her eternal love. <laughs> but uh, we, we, uh, we sent a long letter to Jewison explaining that we absolutely loved the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming, and presumably he's read it, but he did not respond to that one. I actually just did a pod. It just went up this week on uh, Moonstruck, which is one of my absolute favorite films of all time, which I know is in the future for you, but also in the past for you. That's Cher, right? That's Cher and Nicolas Cage. Mm. One of the first real breakout Nicolas Cage performances. I just love, love, love that film. It just makes me so happy. Mm-hmm. One of those movies that just like, it turn, you don't even have to turn off the, your brain because it's so brilliant um it's just a delight all the way through i also did a pod on his his movie rollerball which is mm. very good that's uh james con right that's james con yeah sport of the future yeah it's a very it, it's wonderfully dystopian at this um, point I'm, i think i'm just going to watch everything he does you've got a lot of good movies ahead of you in your chrono in your chronology because next year for you is heat of the night actually that's out like any time now for you if i remember right <laughs> there's there's so much media coming out soon um we have uh, the issue where we have too many records at the moment just because <laughs> 67 is such a good year for sydney oh, potier oh and for for music and and film and stuff talk about a turning point it's just also just a, a absolute golden age 
Yeah, it's, you know, if, if you can step aside from the fact, you know, racism and chauvinism and and all the other the horrible in the Vietnam War and all the other horrible things going on, 1967 is a wonderful time to live. <laughs> 67 is one of those years where everything seems to be flowering, right? You're right. Movies, TV is, is as good as it's ever been at that point. Uh, music in 67 just feels like it's completely freed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and like the... the I'm thinking like it was just a year or two previous that like the Beatles, the Rolling Stones and the Beach Boys all really broke through. Mm-hmm. I, I have to wonder if the reason why 67 is such a mirabilis time is because everything sucked so much that there was all this pent up energy to, to do something, to cope, to make things better. And so you had all this creative energy, sort of like when I had to live in El Centro for the first 18 years of my life, which is hell. <laughs> um, somehow i made it tolerable by you know doing cool things and having good friends well i think also it's because um if you imagine the first wave of boomers hitting their teens and early 20s right they are exploding with energy revolting against the world as most of us do at that age and just trying out new and different things and they're feeding on each other and because it was such a big cohort um it just became this thing that kind of feeds on itself and grows. And there's also, as you, I think, uh, this is me just doing my armchair psychology, of course, there's also this kind of tension between the rebelliousness and the traditionality of it, of the world. And so that also gives it a, a certain amount of tension that I think you need in order to create like really transcendent art. Mm. What were you gonna say, Lorelai? Um well, building off of that, there's uh, there's also, as you say, that it's sort of the first generation of of teenagers. Because before World War II, it was all um, multi generational family households with like children through grandparents and even great grandparents. And then the war happened, and after everybody came home, um, all the Levitt towns got built, and everyone was able to to start doing the suburban uh, nuclear families. And from that sort of stemmed the, because it was just the parents and the child, the and the child, there's a growing middle class, the child is able to, to grow and, and um, branch off in, in, as a teenager, rather than just becoming part of the, the household at that age. Um, and I think that's also an effect uh, that, that causes this, because like you say, you, you need that, that youth, that energy, um, to create change and um and so we have a huge supply of a of a generation of young people with free time and energy <laughs> to to do stuff um but uh going back to uh the russians are coming the russians are coming another point of tension of course is the the cold war going on and and that just has been looming for a while and with the vietnam war it's um sort of more prescient than ever and, but even despite all that, despite living in the time, I, um, funny enough, I actually didn't notice uh, the, the microcosm of a movie until the very end where I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> this is a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think that's a testament to the, the skilled writing and direction and acting where you, you get to know uh, the troubles of each individual character in addition to the the metaphor of the movie, where it, it it is a heavy-handed metaphor, but it doesn't get in the way of enjoying the personal stories that help create it, and and I thought that was really artfully done. 
did you feel like they got frightened too quickly of the Russians landing, or did you feel like it made sense in the context and the uh, time frame? When all of the uh, the the townsfolk started, all the all the men started ganging together and getting their guns and going to the bar to to rally. Yeah, uh, Dad and I just looked at each other and were like, "That is the most American thing <laughs> we have ever seen." Uh, I thought it was perhaps a little bit idealistic at how <laughs> how slow they they got frightened. <laughs> uh, I I just have to say we should probably wrap up. Uh, this movie before so we can go on the next one but i just want to say looking at the information regarding the upcoming in the heat of the night directed by jewison screenplay by sterling stillifant who did uh route 66 starring Cindy potier music by quincy jones i'd be an idiot not to watch this film <laughs> i i think you're going to absolutely love it um uh, two more things i wanted to mention one is uh we got to mention how wonderful jonathan winters is in this I, I love Winters circa mid 60s. He's just got, he's just this powerful ball of energy mm -hmm. in every moment we see him. <laughs> and like you, I just could, could not take my eye off him. Huh. Well, it does take up a large part of the screen. <laughs> and the other is that kind of leads me to the comparison <clears throat> probably most people make, which is to one of my absolute favorite films uh, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Which we did not see, but I, I understand, but I often hear this movie compared to. Yeah. Okay. So if you haven't seen it, then uh, it's probably not worth dwelling on it. But I was, it is an interesting contrast to that film because you're talking earlier about like that, uh, about like the style of this movie. This is a lot more naturalistic than Mad mm -hmm. World. And it's a lot less of a kind of over the top farce. And I think this movie really benefits from that. Yeah. And it still has this larger scope that gives it, um, kind of this almost universal feel to it like you were saying Lorelai as a as a uh, metaphor I think it works really well because it's this uh, really clear uh, uh, scope of uh, location mm -hmm. this the smart people in the movie see the humor in the situation yeah, yeah. and that's what makes it real Rasanov is constantly just yep this is happening <laughs> <laughs> All so right. What, oh, so, sorry, go ahead. No, I, we, as you alluded, we will transition over to The Flight of the Phoenix. It's an interesting pair of films, I got to say. Yeah. I'm not sure they perfectly match up for each other. <laughs> different different tone, absolutely. Um, but uh, if, if there's anything they share, it's that, that grounded feeling, uh, no pun intended, after Flight of the Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> So I have seen the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming, probably on some ABC Sunday night movie or something over the years. Fly of the Phoenix, I've actually never even heard of. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was amazed by how much I enjoyed it. Wait, so did you just watch it for the show? I just watched it for the show. Oh, my God. Isn't it so good? Yes, uh, for a lot of reasons. And what did you like about it? Uh, well, first of all, I like the kind of Oh, the plot of the film in general, you know, it's this group of people who are stranded and they have to figure out a way to survive. And this engineer with this wonderful secret uh, figures out a way they can rebuild a, a version of their plane that will allow them to get out of the desert before they all die. And I just think that core story alone is just this amazing story, right? I, I was so intrigued just by that aspect of it alone. 
And maybe it's the engineer in me, or maybe it's the guy, the kid who liked to put toys together and make them into other toys, you know, Legos and Transformers and stuff. But like, I found that core idea so intriguing. For me, the heart of the movie is the relationship between uh, Stuart and Attenborough. Yeah. Oh, Lou, <laughs> we've been married an awful long time, Lou. And uh, I think this is James Stewart's swan song performance. You know, he's got so many Stewartisms, and you can just, he, he's, a, he's a walking parody of himself. And yet in this movie, he's absolutely brilliant. It's a very subtle performance, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very, it's, in, it's, it's interesting in a few ways. Uh, so I just watched and did an analysis uh, in the previous, just last week, in fact, um, for Vertigo. Mm. And so having Vertigo in my mind and then seeing Stuart in this film is a really interesting juxtaposition because in both films, he's this very kind of flawed man. He kind of is self-deluding in a way. Um, in Phoenix, he comes around and, and appreciates uh, what's happening and, and stops being uh, a problematic person, to put it nicely. But, <laughs> but there's this whole other element to it, of course, because James Stewart was a decorated Air Force flyer in World War II. Right. Very comfortable with, with airplanes. This is his world also. He brings a certain, you use the term verisimilitude earlier to this film that uh, gives it this really interesting power. Um, the part that I really liked about the movie was uh, how expertly they um, introduce you to a cast of characters. And there are, uh, there's a huge cast of speaking roles in this movie. And, and while they're, it's a stable setting, so you, can, you have time to get introduced to each of them, I, I still felt like they, they made you care about each character and each little conflict. It, it's, it's absolutely the film of making small things matter. Um, and, and even with the backdrop of, of course, this is a life or death struggle in the, in the middle of the worst desert, um, it's like every little struggle and every little success is so uh, powerful and effective. And it just makes the, the banning together and all the, the interpersonal strife stand out that much more. I, I really appreciated Hardy Kruger's character because I talked to someone after the movie and she said, oh, I just couldn't stand him. He was such a jerk. And I said, I think he's supposed to be autistic, um, which was mm -hmm. a which was a a, hmm. a type of person that was just starting to be spotlit. I mean, you and I read the Martian time slip um, by Philip K. Dick. Um, people like that, people who have trouble connecting with other people who live in their own sort of world um, and now would be recognized as on the spectrum of back then they were just starting to really understand autism and Asperger's. Um, and he's similar to the character. I don't know if how he was in the movie. You saw the movie, but in the book, uh, the doctor character in Fantastic Voyage is a very similar character um, who comes off as cold and, and distant and difficult to work with and, and in, inappropriate um, and, and confused when people react unfavorably to them. And I feel like this is a character that was just starting to come to the fore. Mr. Spock, to some degree, has that too. Um, 
And I thought Hardy Kruger just did it perfectly. So if you look at Hardy Kruger, I, I know lots of people with Asperger's. You know, my, my brother may have it. Um, he has two kids who are on the spectrum. Um, and so seeing this character, I really got into his head and really understood him and appreciated him a lot more. Mm. Well, that's very interesting. Uh, yeah, he struck me as someone who's really just focused on solving the problem as opposed to kind of wallow, wallowing in misery. He, he had this insight. He said, we, we can rebuild this plane. Let's just do it. And <laughs> I found that very kind of heroic in its own different way. I mean, he really, he's applying his, his uh, unique skill set, so to speak, onto uh, solving this problem. I don't know anything about the actor. It looks like he's been in a ton of movies. He was he was German. It's interesting because he says in the movie when they're talking about him being a kraut and, and the war, he says, I wasn't involved. Um, but actually, the actor himself was uh, in the, I believe he was in the Hitler Youth. Um, oh, wow. Now, I don't know that, that oh, means. Oh, yeah, that. IMDb says he was, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't hold that against him. I mean... It was at the time, but yeah, but his parents were Nazis. <laughs> but you know, he was 16 in the war. Hmm. Oh wow, he was ordered to shoot at an American squad, refused, sentenced to death for cowardice. And that was uh when he decided he wasn't gonna be a Nazi anymore. So it's good <laughs> for him. Yeah, I, I don't hold against him. By the way, can we can we can we heap enough praise on Richard Attenborough for this role as oh, Lou? Yeah. Yeah, we we'll talk about a multi-talented creator too. Um, uh, go ahead. Oh, his uh, yeah, his role as the the peacemaker, um, it was just like a brilliant um, role and a brilliant performance, and something that I appreciated because you don't always see a a man in that role like often it it's like there's a there's the woman who, who calms down the men in sort of a stereotypical fashion but this was very much just like guys we we cannot be aggressive and posturing here we, we have to try to communicate with each other yeah and uh and he brought like a a, a gentleness to the movie I, I i identified with stewart and identified my wife in richard attenborough yeah <laughs> Which I guess makes Lorelai Ernest Borgnine. <laughs> <laughs> Considering his fate in this movie, I'm not sure I'd be happy with that, Lorelai. <laughs> I, uh, the Sergeant Watson's story, you know, he yeah. refuses, he disobeys, he's a, he's, a he's a coward and a traitor, and he's right. And he's right. Yeah. How do you, what do you think of this guy, you know? I think he does the right thing. It, this is one of those moments that to me, it, like exemplifies this kind of interesting moral ambiguity to this movie that make, gives it another interesting element, which is, you know, he does disobey orders. He fakes an injury. He does everything he can to avoid having to wander out in the desert. And he is 100% correct. Right. And the movie vindicates basically the need to think freely, but also to listen to others. It's, it's very much about... Uh, the need to come together and think clearly, no matter how terrifying your situation is. To, 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 to pimp something of my own, one of the things that I like so much about my book, Kitra, is there's no enemy. 
there's five friends stuck in the middle of space and the only way they can get home is if they work together to find a way home and there is interpersonal conflict there peter's a coward marta and keith are having feelings for each other which is not good because marta is going out with peter and flight of the phoenix is the same thing 12 people trapped in the desert all having reasons to not like each other and yet they all need to work together to get out and there's no enemy other than the elements themselves and i freaking love that i find the movie such an inspiration i've seen it twice when when jimmy stewart you know he's going to succeed putting you know getting the engine started and yet it takes him several charges and and the tension is there yeah. and it's just ah i'm tearing out just thinking about it <laughs> this is one of my very favorite movies it was my choice for the dramatic presentation galactic star which is our answer to the hugos and uh just freaking love this movie does it stand out for the lack of conflict compared to other movies from that from those couple of years when you when there's when you watch other movies that throw groups of people together do they just have kind of mindless conflict um well i don't know how many i've seen that count i'm thinking of uh i mean you have um the great escape I suppose is a bunch of people together, but but there it's obvious who they're fighting against, right? They're fighting yeah. against the Nazis and they have to get away. And ultimately it's a beautiful love story between Charles Bronson and the guy who rose away in the robot with at the end of the movie. But <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's sort of the unique thing about Flight of the Phoenix, especially compared to most of the other movies, is is any other movie in this setting. We just watched um To Brook. To Brook. And we, we've been watching sort of going through all of the desert war movies of, mm. of World War II in Africa. And it's a similar setting, but all of those other movies, of course, have a very clear uh, war atmosphere and a clear enemy. And whereas Flight of the Phoenix, as my dad pointed out, it, the enemy is the desert itself and just trying to work together to survive. And, um, and that is something that I think... Um, is not only rare in the 60s but probably rare in 2022 where you live um or how often can you say there's a movie without any villain uh and it's only the the uh the character's own egos <coughs> and um an occasional um unexpected like of course there there are occasionally um challenges they have to face and people they have to face but it's never more overwhelming than just the risk of heat exhaustion um, throughout the movie. It feels so much more like real life because those are the conflicts we actually are going to find ourselves into more than, you know, getting in a war or whatever. Um, it's that that moment when you're on a hike and you run out of water and it's like, what do I do? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, uh, I, yeah, I agree with that, what you're saying. I think it's what gives this movie its own unique power. It's fascinating to me. I got the movie poster behind me, of course, on video, and the movie poster kind of implies it's going to be this giant war film, almost <laughs> as if they're like running away from what this movie really is. Yeah. 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 I'm sure it, it didn't do particularly well because they didn't know how to market it. I mean, this is unlike anything else. Um, yeah, it cost three to five million dollars to make and only made three million dollars at box office. That's that's a failure. Yeah. And uh well, another another thing that having no villain does for it is there's no there's incredible moral ambiguity among each of the characters. I mean, as we talked about before, the sergeant, 
his choice to try and leave his uh, his leader behind. Like when he he's dying out in the desert, he's the only one who sees them and he doesn't say anything. Mm-hmm. And that is just one of the most heart-wrenching points in the movie. And you're thinking, why? Why is he doing this? And it's just a matter of he's terrified of him coming back because he knows that he'll have to be an underling again and listen and have to break uh break orders or something and mm-hmm. it's just same thing when he uh when the captain's like i'll go talk to the arabs and, and the beefcake doctor goes with him yeah and uh and the sergeant watches like you're gonna die there too i'm not going yeah and and he's he's usually right but the 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 point where he chooses not to to help the captain is not um it is probably the lowest point for his character and yeah. and ultimately but he he's right enough that he's one of the few that survive right. and and i always thought that was interesting who survives in the end and it's not the characters that you love the most in fact some of the characters are ones that you barely even know and are fairly mm-hmm. unremarkable throughout the movie um and yet they're the ones who survive because they're the ones who just sort of sat and listened to right. orders and then and then were able to to succeed so there's you have the leaders and then the unremarkable ones and then anybody who who stood out um ultimately doesn't make it and yeah. and that's a really interesting choice as well yeah the borgnine is unstable the captain is devoted to tilting at windmills um there's nothing wrong with the doctor but he's too well-meaning to say no to the captain and uh and the people who survive are people like the uh, the insurance guy who eats a lot, and George Kennedy who has absolutely no characteristic other than that he's pretty good natured. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's just a helper, and Stuart because uh, he kind of is hands off from a lot of things. Well, Stuart Stuart is of all the characters he is somewhat larger than life. Mm-hmm. I mean, he mm-hmm. as you say he is a pilot and he comes off as a pilot he's extremely plausible in that position because of course he could be in that position um but he's flawed and and it's great when he recognizes that he's flawed but he only does it when when lou who is also quite flawed yeah um is like you know what you can give me all the grief you want but you're just as screwed up as i am and i can at least stop drinking right well he's (laughs) flawed in such a plausible way though too Mm-hmm. Actually, both both the Stuart and Attenborough characters are flawed in such logical ways. Right. You know, it really flows from character, which is also what gives this movie its strength. And actually, it's what you were talking about uh, with with uh, the German character as well. Like, you know, these are these are pretty well fleshed out characters where we know just enough to really get a sense of who they are. But we also don't have too much, right? We don't know about their lives outside of this very, very much at all, right? There's right. The, the injured man who has the picture of his wife, new wife. We have no idea about the personal lives of anyone else here. Do they have kids? Does Frank Towns, the Stuart character, have grandkids? We don't know. He never mentions them. We just have to build this in ourselves. Mm-hmm. We know just enough, really. Yeah. And that's part of the beauty of it. This, this movie is is self-contained. It's like a bubble of um, of itself, of this this one larger than life adventure that these normal people go on, and and it's the kind of story that that people keep telling. Um, 
and you, you just kind of can tell at the end of the movie when everybody is running to the oasis and dipping their head in the water it's like this is a group that probably won't drift apart that, that they have survived and done performed a miracle and they're probably going to st- stick together no matter their differences after this yeah I, uh, looking at Wikipedia, I find it, found the story of how the, the stunt pilot who flew the Phoenix and died in a crash in it, and the movie was dedicated to him. I mean, that, I found that extremely poignant. Oh, yeah. so sad. So sad. And yeah, uh, that's just incredibly tragic. Yeah. And then the, the movie was a failure, but I, I can kind of see why. It, it's an odd duck. I mean, everyone who sees it loves it, but but I think the general audience didn't know what to make of it. And did just didn't bother to watch it. Maybe mm-hmm. it just doesn't easily fit into a niche, right? Right. But strongly recommended. I know they made a remake that people like too. I have not seen the remake. Yeah, it seems to be less well liked anyway, and the the general consensus is it's just unnecessary. Oh, I didn't know this. The movie was filmed, or at least the flying sequences were filmed in Winter Haven, which is just a few miles east of my hometown of El Centro. Oh, and, and Fly of the Phoenix was actually filmed outside of Phoenix in uh, like the Mesa, Arizona area. Mm. Uh, no, it says, it says pilot. Oh yeah, Buttercup Valley. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. That's what I, what I had read. No, uh, it says by Buttercup Valley and Pilot Knob in California. So Buttercup is near Yuma. So okay. that's in the same Mojave Desert. And then Pilot Knob is also in Imperial County. Yeah, so it's mostly filmed in Imperial County, which makes sense if you want to be in the desert. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been in that desert many, many times. So we didn't really talk about how the Russians are coming. Also really doesn't have a villain in it. And in fact, the, the beauty of the film is that we are throughout the movie uh, kind of being told that the people perceive the Russians, that the people in the town perceive the Russians as villains, but they're not actually villains, right? They're just as uh, nice and normal as the Americans are. Right. Uh, so we kind of have two movies where there's no bad guys. Right. They have to get together and, and, and the Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. is They have to get the sub up, off of Gloucester Island. <laughs> And it was very refreshing, as you were saying a minute ago, to watch movies where there is no bad guy. No one's fighting against anyone. Mm-hmm. Those, the, the those quiz- movies always tend to be zero sum by definition, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I always think of this, too. Like, you know, if the Russians were cast as the bad guys in that film, for example, they're just been doing their job, right? Who happened? Okay, they, they land on the sandbar because... Uh, the captain is excited to see America too. It's a very cute reason, right? It's not anything yeah. malignant, uh, but like, you know, a more traditional movie would have him be a bad guy, have him be someone who's out to, um, you know, spy and gather some information. But instead, no, they're just as nice as anyone who lives in that town, actually probably nicer because they're not ready to lynch everyone. <laughs> um, that's, that's a good point, right? The movie could have been done where Theodore Bikel was the bad guy and Rasanoff and <clears throat> Reiner had to team up to capture the submarine for the American mm-hmm. military. And that would have been the case if it was a modern movie with Tom Cruise in the role of Walt. Uh-huh. Walt Whitaker. Whitaker Walt. Yeah. 
God, now I'm cringing at that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Not ready to see either of that. I see that one at all. Yeah. No, two great films. I'm really glad we got to watch these. I would not have watched them. I had happy memories. The Russians are coming too from the last time I saw it. So I was very glad to revisit it. Let's definitely do, uh, if, if you got the schedule for it, Patch of Blue and, uh, and Grand Prix next time. Okay, let's do that. Um, but just to wrap it up, um, uh, the <coughs> Flight of the Phoenix, I think, is just a masterful portrayal of heroism and teamwork and uh, leadership um, among very flawed and uh, believable people and, and trying to survive. So if anybody who likes um, like post-apocalypse or survival or uh, has any sort of outdoor experience and, and wants to see... Um, <coughs> That, that treated realistically in a fictional setting. Um, definitely, definitely watch that movie. And then uh, Russians are coming, Russians are coming. Or just, it's just an absolute delight. And, uh, and it's a good sort of, I don't know, a restoration of faith in humanity. Both of the films are. <laughs> yeah. Where yeah. It, it, in, in a non, in, like in a, in a plausible way, they, they show people working together despite themselves and uh and it, it's a really good show of hope and and humor and and um i i think both are are fantastic films that that everyone should watch especially in the as we mentioned in these trying times of 67 and 2022 what better way to to enact change as, as by uh the art that we use to portray the world we live in so that's my thoughts I can't, I can't top that yeah thank you for joining me this week it's a real pleasure to get to hang out with you and talk about these movies yeah well and, and uh you can find jason's articles at galacticjourney.org and mine and lorelei's too and sadly we didn't see you on any star trek episodes hopefully that changes next next year yeah i have to do that i have to try and join you uh 